This is episode number 17, Never Say Can't, with Jen Bricker. Welcome. My name is Ola Glohid, and this is the Overcoming Ads podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of adoptees and foster care youth who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Today's guest is someone whose story will absolutely blow you away. She was born without legs and given up for adoption at a young age. She's an American acrobat and aerialist. Tune in as we talk about the importance of not comparing yourself to others, how you can achieve anything that you set your mind to, and reasons why everyone's story matters. Without further ado, please welcome Jen Bricker. And thanks a lot for joining us today. And I figured that the best way we, was, we could start off this interview is by having you share a little bit of your story for those who are not aware of it. Um, and the part that I wanted to actually start off was when you had met your sister, who was actually your idol, based on my understanding. And tell us a little bit about what that experience was like. Well, um, you know, I grew up very, well, I was born without legs and I was put up for adoption, left in the hospital. And then I lived in a foster home for the first three months of my life. And my, my parents who really are the heroes and kind of the best part of my quote story, my life, you know, they're, their story, I think, is kind of the most powerful story of all because it's, and it started before I came in. And so, you know, they had never adopted, never fostered, had three boys that were 10, 12, and 14 years old. My mom always wanted a baby girl, and she felt like she was supposed to have four kids. Well, after she had my last brother, she couldn't have kids anymore. And, um, you know, I didn't stop her, though. I mean, for 10 years, she never gave up hope. She never gave up her faith, her, her believing. And for 10 years, she believed that she would eventually get her baby girl. And so she heard about a baby girl one day, born without legs, put up for adoption. And that was it. I mean, it was just like, she's like, well, in her mind, it made sense. Like, oh, well, there's a girl. Baby needs a home. I want a daughter, you know, right? <laughs> so um, she was just like, okay. And, you know, talk to my dad briefly and he gets like three words out, you know, well, if I thought you could, Oh, great. That's, you know, I'm glad you agree. She says, <laughs> and, um, and that just started that whole, the, the whole story of me coming into my family and my parents adopted me. Well, they got me when I was three months old. They officially adopted me at a year and a half and I was raised so, so normal, you know, and I quote normal, everything I wanted to do, you know, I came out an athlete. I, I loved being athletic. I did softball, basketball, volleyball, all against able-bodied athletes, no wheelchair, no prosthetics, you know, and at the time, I mean, I didn't think 
anything of that. I didn't think that was out of the norm. I didn't think that was amazing. I didn't understand why everyone thought that was amazing. You know, to me, I was just doing what I loved and what I was good at. Mm -hmm. And gymnastics was my favorite. Like gymnastics and volleyball were side by side. You know, they were, but gymnastics was a little above the other sports. And I started my very beginner classes in second grade uh, for tumbling. And I was watching TV as I got older. So um, at about seven, eight years old, I remember the Olympics going on at 96 Olympics. And I, I had already known about Dominique Mochianu. And I loved, I loved the fact that she was Romanian and I knew I was Romanian. And growing up in the middle of nowhere, I grew up in southern Illinois in the cornfields, literally. And so um, there, there really wasn't diversity. And I was always outside and when I'm in the sun I become brown like totally brown like a different person you know so um I was brown dark jet black hair big brown eyes you know so no one looked like me and I and definitely certainly nobody was Romanian so I saw her and I'm just like well she not only does she look like me which no one looked like me <laughs> she was Romanian and she was doing my favorite sport so it was just like the most, as an eight-year-old, that's what you're going to bond on, right? These just kind of simple things. Mm -hmm. Well, flash forward to almost turning 16 years old, I had asked my, my mom about my biological family, and lo and behold, she knew something about my biological family that I never in my life would have thought, and she tells me that Dominique Mochianu was my biological sister. Wow. So Yes. <laughs> wow. So the person that I was drawn to as a kid, there was a reason I was drawn to her. You know, she was my full-blooded biological sister. And I mean, that's just, you know, it's mind-blowing. It's, it's crazy. It's awesome. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. It's, it's every emotion. How, and that... How did, you get sorry, in, how did you get in touch with her, actually? Yeah. Yeah, that's where I was going next. So that started kind of the four-year journey for me to contact both my sisters. So in that process of discovery, I realized I had a, another sister. She was younger. Her name is Christina. So Dominique older, Christina younger. I'm the middle. And um, I was very, very motivated to uh, meet them and to find them and to let them know that I existed because I was pretty sure they didn't know I existed. And um, so it took four years, several failed attempts, and I eventually got in contact with them at the very end of 2007 in December and we all met for the very first time in May of 2008 so coming up on 10 years in May mm. do you have any recommendations for people who are in the process of getting in touch with their biological parents because you know one of the things I haven't done so I haven't done it just yet um, but I know that some of the other people that I spoke with they said that it's one of those fe feelings where you just can't simulate it's almost like you can't prepare for it but is there anything that people can be aware of when they're meeting their roots for the first time well i think definitely you can't compare it to anybody else's story because everybody's story is so different you know for me example uh, for example with me i didn't meet my biological parents until two years after i met my sisters so i met my sisters first and establish that relationship, and that's a bit unorthodox. I mean, I don't even know if I could say unorthodox because, like I said, everybody's story is so different. So I think you have to really just go in with no expectations as well. 
I mean, it just no expectations and realize that every single person's story is different. And I think the most important thing is if it's important to you to meet your biological family, then no matter what the outcome is, if you gave it your all and you did your best, then that's what you should be proud of. You know, cause I had to come to that term. Like I thought there was a two week period between when I had sent out all of the information to my older sister and when I actually got a response and, and towards the end of the two weeks, when I still hadn't got a response, I had to have that conversation with myself. I had to say, okay, Jen, if they don't respond and if they don't want you in their life, then you know that you did everything you could. You put all the cards on the table. You left nothing else, nothing. You know, I put my heart into that and that's what I was proud of. And that no matter what the outcome was, even if they hadn't accepted me, I was okay with that because I did everything I could have done. Mm-hmm. You know, I would never look back and regret because I, I, you know, did everything I could. Do you know why you were adopted in the first place? Well, my parents were, were really open about, um, on, I, I used to say honest and open about everything from the beginning. So they said, you know, I always knew I was adopted. I knew that my biological family was from Romania. And they, they told me, they said, listen, most likely you were put up for adoption because you didn't have legs. You know, this is a different country. They have, they grew up under communism. There's a different mentality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they said you didn't walk in their shoes. You don't really know what was going on. So they made sure that I didn't harbor any hate toward them, thankfully. And and I think because they addressed that issue so early in my life, it gave me the freedom to not hold any hate or bitterness because it was like this is the way it was supposed to work out so so why they gave you up wasn't really that doesn't matter you know mm-hmm. because you were our answered prayer and end of at the end of the day you ended up where you were supposed to be so I, I kind of always assumed that it was because I didn't have legs because you know that just made sense and then when I met my biological family that was certainly one of the reasons uh there there were more reasons as well they were poor immigrants in in the U.S. They didn't have a lot of money. They already had um, one child, Dominique, and they didn't know if I was going to have all these health complications, which would have caused medical bills, all of that. They they didn't know all of that stuff. And then also it, it wasn't my biological mother's choice. You know, it was my biological father who made the choice and, and she never even got to hold me. So, mm. you know, for her, That's got to be, I mean, I just can't imagine what that would be like and what that would do to you. And then extremely painful. And then basically forced to keep it a secret for 20 years. I think that's even kind of the worst part for her. Um, But, you know, she's, I think she's doing much better today. Her and I, you know, the relationship with her took a lot longer and, and was definitely slower and totally different than the relationship with my sisters. You know, yet again, kind of getting rid of expectations and just letting it be what it's going to be. It's not easy, but it it is kind of the best thing to do when you're going into this whole new part of your life. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like with something like this, it just takes a lot of time to find, I guess, closure on both ends and, and acceptance in your case. Um, what does adoption mean to you today? I know that you have a very positive outlook on it. Is there something that you wish you had known I guess prior to being adopted, in your case, you were too young, I'm assuming, but if you could go back, was there, were there things that you wish 
um, you knew prior to that whole process? Well, I think for me, I, I was um, raised, I only knew adoption as a kid to be something of celebration and happiness and positiveness. So I didn't even realize that there was any kind of negative connotation or maybe misinformation about adoption until I was an adult, like a full-blown adult. And I remember I would say something like, oh, yeah, you know, I was adopted. And people would say, oh, I'm sorry. And I was like, what? What What do you mean? You're so-? I, I couldn't even – it made no sense to me. It was the weirdest reaction. And then I had to start – you know, got it several times. And I'm like, that is so strange Like because <laughs> – I was just, you know, it was always a celebration in my family, in my community. It was just such a thing of joy. And so I was like really confused by those answers. And then as I got older and I've now spoken at adoption events and been involved in in the adoption world and learned kind of about adoption on a global scale and understanding that it's so important to talk about adoption that it doesn't have to be a sad story, but then also let's bring awareness to it. And, you know, even I live in Los Angeles and the, I just went to a a function all about foster and adoption and Los Angeles has the largest number of kids in the foster and adoption world in the United States, 35,000 kids just in Los Angeles are in. Yes. And, you know, it's one of those things that I'm a a single person, and when I'm looking for someone to date, there's a reason why I'm telling you this. Um, I've had conversations with somebody that was dating, and I always assumed, again, growing up, well, everybody, of course you want to adopt somebody, right, you know? And I have been in conversations on a date where we talk about adoption, and they say, well, I I mean, I want my own kid. I, I don't think I could ever adopt, and I'm just like, I was floored. I was so floored when this first started happening. And so all of these experiences have have really opened my eyes to talking about it more, which is easy for me because I'm passionate about it. Mm -hmm. Adoption is something I want to do in the future along with having a natural birth as well. But I think it's so important because your family is who raises you. It doesn't just mean that your blood is your family. Like my parents are my parents. They're not biologically my parents, but they're my parents. Mm-hmm. I would never say otherwise, right? So I think it's um, important on many levels to just talk about it from from every angle, you know, from a person who is the person that is adopting a child, from the child who is adopted, from, you know, all the way around and just kind of bring more awareness to it and, and show that it can, I mean, it changes people's lives. It's It's a huge thing that maybe I think people just aren't, informed about and so maybe they shy away from it because they just don't have the knowledge right and they just hear a stereotype and then that sticks with them and then they think oh no i could never do that meanwhile there's thousands of kids that don't have a home yeah i know i completely agree with you with regard to uh, sharing your story that's actually how overcoming odds started and the uh one of the first steps we did was we allowed people to share their story um, you know, it didn't really matter if you were, if you had a bad or a good adoption. It was more so of a place for you to feel comfortable to do that. And it, it's, it's been amazing to see the type of impact it has had on people. You know, in some cases, it's, one, it's, it's therapy 
to be able to sit down and answer some of those questions like, why were you adopted? What's your relationship with your birth parents? And things like that. Because in some cases, in your case, in my case, our parents were very transparent and open about the whole process and our past. But there are also other cases where, you know, sometimes parents don't disclose some of the information for multiple reasons. But I, I believe that at the end of the day, you should be able to know everything about your past and your present so that way you can focus on the future. Yes, yes, I agree. And, and I think, like you said, it's the more people talk about their experiences, bad or good, that's how people can learn. Yes, the more comfortable they become with their story and the things that happened to them, exactly. Yes. I want to jump back to actually your gymnastics career. And based on my understanding, the first step is often the most difficult one. Do you remember your first time going to the gym after deciding to become a gymnast? I vaguely, I mean, I was very young, very young, like second grade. <laughs> so, um, the, you know what the funniest thing I remember? So the, the, the town that when we very first started the, the classes, it was in, it was about, I think 30 minutes from where I lived. It, it then got moved closer to where I went to school. But in the beginning, it was about 30 minutes away. And I <laughs> I can't believe... So I love to eat at Hardee's. And I love the hot ham and cheese sandwiches. <laughs> I would never, ever eat that kind of food now. But as a kid, that's what I remember. Because it was right by a Hardee's. And that was my reward. Was to get a hot ham and cheese <laughs> sandwich <laughs> after tumbling practice. So... That is what I remember the most. And I, I vaguely remember the old school mats that you just rolled out on the floor and we were just learning um, forward rolls and backward rolls. I mean, it was that, you know, we were really, really young. And those are the things I remember when I, you know, first started that whole world. Hmm. Did anyone ever try to discourage you throughout this process? I mean, I, I'm assuming the answer is going to be yes, as as it always is. But is there a time that sticks out to you the most? And if so, how did you deal with it? Well, uh, actually, the, it's funny when I do, I've been doing interviews for, I feel like my whole life about my life. And so um, I feel like so many times the answer is not what the person thinks or maybe even wants it to be. But for me, you know, I, like I said, I grew up in a really small town. My parents, you have to understand the mentality and kind of the way everyone viewed me in, in my home and in my town, there was no like, Oh, this is Jen Bricker, the girl without legs. Like it, it was not like that. It just really wasn't. And that's hard for some people to understand really hard for some people to understand, mm -hmm. but it was just how it was. It was, I was where I was supposed to be. I was thought of as, you know, I was an athlete. I was strong. I was, climbing trees. I was, you know, this chatty human being my whole entire life, <laughs> you know, always involved in everything. And so, I mean, especially I was so young when I started. So I definitely don't remember anybody trying to discourage me. Um, I remember as I got older and started competing and actually going to meets and competitions around the United States, I remember like one incident where um, there was a girl that was like, starting to become kind of irritated and a little jealous because 
I was beating her and actually doing better than her in competitions, you know, um, which that was soon resolved. I mean, we were kids. It's like, you know what I mean? It wasn't mm-hmm. some monumental issue or anything. But, you know, the thing with me is when I was competing, I wanted to make sure that there was absolutely nothing, no special advantages, nothing catered to me, nothing. Because, you know, I'm competing with everybody who has legs, right? I'm the only one that's, you know, without legs and totally different. And so I wanted to make sure that everything I did was exactly the same way everybody else did so that if I did win, it was totally fair and square. Mm. And um, so I don't, I mean, I don't remember people being uh, discouraging or anything like that. I mean, my coaches were incredible because they never had, um, you know, it's not like they coached somebody with no legs before, right? They didn't have experience in that. And, you know, my coach was like, she, she told my mom, it's like, uh, we've never done this, but we can try and just see what happens. And that's exactly what they did, you know? And so they didn't discourage. They didn't, uh, you know, blow sparkles and rainbows and pretend that it was going to be perfect. They were just level and honest. And we just did that. We, I went in, I had the determination and the passion. They just like, okay, let's see how it goes. I'm going to, I'm going to coach her like we'd coach anybody else. And that's just what we did. That's amazing. Could you tell us a little bit about your book? Because I know that throughout it, you know, you clearly are using your story to inspire others. And um, one of the phrases I think you actually used used most often was never say can't. And it's it's funny that you say that because my my dad, my adopted dad, said the same exact thing. I remember when I first came to the States, I had for first like two or three years – I had a hard time understanding uh, English, actually. And he made sure that that was one of the first words that I truly understood. Wow. So, yeah, I, I, I still remember, you know, I was sitting in the dining room and I was doing homework with him. And I'm, I'm sure just like any other kid at that age, uh, whenever, <laughs> whenever you had a problem, you'd, you know, go to your parents and you hope that they solve the problem for you. At least in my, in my, in my case. Yes. So I, I went up to my dad and I said, hey, dad, I'm not understanding this or, you know, how, how do you do it? And instead of doing the problem for me, he said, you know, first of all, say, never think that you can't do something. And then he kind of taught me the process and we sat down. He, he didn't solve the problem for me, but he made me understand that there are other ways to get to your end goal. Yes. Yes. Wow. We definitely have a lot in common. <laughs> I love that. I love hearing that. What what is tell us a little bit about your book and the message that you were trying to tell people through it and also how you just came about it. Yeah, well, I mean, geez. So my book, because it's about my life, is is about so many things. Of course it's got Everything, you know, the adoption story is, is, is laced through my entire life, obviously. Um, I talk about my faith. I talk about fitness, health, and nutrition, which is a huge, huge passion of mine. And, and actually even the weight loss transformation, which I had as well. And, and then overcoming body dysmorphia, kind of going on the other end of that, where, you know, one of the darkest and lowest points of my life was just being obsessed with being skinny and then being skinny and then trying to having to recover and come out of that, which was 
about a three-year process and that was just whole thing in and of itself I talk about love my first loves my adult loves you know um, traveling around the world uh, performing as an acrobat and an aerialist and a speaker and so there's many many messages in there and I think one of the biggest messages that I love to in in plant and people is that we all everybody has gifts and talents everybody has abilities and everybody matters. Everybody is significant. A lot of people think that they don't matter, that they're not, uh, that they're insignificant and that their lives don't matter. And I, I know that everybody's here for, for a reason, for many reasons, for many purposes. They have so much power in them and not the, I think when we hear that, we automatically go to the kind of greedy, money-hungry power, but this is like a pure, beautiful kind of power to affect and change someone's life. And so if if I can inspire someone to really believe and know that they matter, that they're here for a reason, that they have purpose in their life, and that they can, in fact, change someone's life, then that's incredible. Because that's not just for me. That's not just for certain people who people think are inspiring people or, oh, well, it's just like those kind of people who are made to inspire. Everybody is made to inspire. Everybody can do that and was made to do that, you know, through the gifts and talents and the things that they love through their passion. So that's what makes it awesome. That's the cherry on top is that everybody wins. Then you're doing what you love. You're doing what you're passionate about and you're changing somebody's life. I mean, that's just, that's a win-win. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that you talk about the process throughout your book of how one can do that, but could you briefly describe kind of the steps that people can take in discovering their self-worth and understanding that their story is just as inspiring as anyone else's? Yeah, so I think it's, it. first of all, it starts with just acknowledging that, you know, just do you really believe that? Do you really believe that you matter? Mm-hmm. Do you really believe that you're here for purposes and do you really believe that through you and your life can you make an impact people think oh jen i don't i don't have a platform i don't have a stage like you and i say yes you do because you have people in your life that you interact with teachers uh, friends family coworkers whoever it is the people that are seeing you on a regular basis and that's their platform that's their stage and that's those are the people that you're impacting, whether you realize it or not, you just are by what you're doing and what you're not doing. And so I think one of the, I guess the first steps or the biggest steps would just be what I've realized is that every day, you know, we have, we're, we're faced with many, many challenges and uh, many choices, I should say, many, many choices every single day. And so, and I think we think a lot of them are very, uh, minute, they don't matter. They're they're kind of just no big deal. Eh, whatever. Who cares if, you know, I didn't talk to this person today. Who cares if I didn't smile at this person? Like whatever, it's no big deal, you know. But I think those small quote small choices, decisions that we have to make every day, if we look at those decisions in a week or two weeks or a month or a year, those are the very choices that shape who we are. Mm-hmm. They they end up making us, our character, our work ethic, who we are. So if we could just pay attention to those small choices every day, 
make and realize that that they're not small. They actually matter because they lead up to the huge firework over the top moments. You have to have those moments in order to have an incredible once in a lifetime moment to prepare you for that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a good, just a good way to kind of start looking at it. Yes. Yes. And realize that everybody that what we bring to the table, first of all, everybody brings something to the table and it is of equal value and it has to be different than the people around you or people that you think are incredible, mine, yours. We, we have to have different abilities and gifts so that we can reach different people. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. We don't. And then when you can accept that, you don't have to ever be jealous of anybody else's gifts and talents because you know that yours are unique and, and yours have to be different than somebody else's. I love what you just said because it's such it's so important to understand that for people, especially in today's world, where you know when I when I first started this um, overcoming odds in general, one of the first things I heard from people is that the impact the impact was always questioned, and it was questioned because you know you're not reaching certain numbers on social media and stuff like that, like things that people can see, mm-hmm. but there are so many things that people don't see. When you're in the room, even when you're sitting in front of two or three people, if that's, if you were able to impact those people, then that's all that matters. Yes. And I think nowadays, especially, there's so much emphasis on the the numbers. It's like, okay, well, you know, you've impacted 10, but can you do 1,000? Can you do a million? Or why aren't you doing those? And that's, and I think there there's definitely, it's all, just like you said, it's building blocks. They're all building blocks for each other. So it's important for people like, and honestly, anyone who's trying to make a change and everyone who, who's currently doing it is to recognize that. Right, right, exactly, exactly. It doesn't, and this is something, I mean, even myself, because, you know, first of all, I am not perfect, never will claim to be, never will pretend to be, and I will never reach that. <laughs> so, um, no, none of us will, right? But that's something I have to remind myself sometimes too, is that, you know, I'm, I'm in the entertainment industry. I live in LA. I've been here or been in the industry for 10 years and, you know, I've done incredible, exhilarating things all over the world. But there was a girl that just yesterday posted, her mom posted a video of her and she chose to do her school report on me. And She's, she's practicing her presentation. She's reading it out loud. And her mom had had my book on Audible, but she insisted on getting the hard copy to read it. And this girl's eight years old. Mm. And I just, you know, in, um, in a coordination with that, a separate school, there's a whole school of eighth graders in Illinois doing, they're studying my book reading about it, doing homework on it, doing lessons on it. And it just, they've all been sending me messages and it has been absolutely blowing my mind. Like I can't wrap my mind around the fact that people are learning about me in school and, and studying my book. And the reason I'm saying this is because this isn't performing on tour with Britney Spears in front of 20,000 people, Mm -hmm. but the magnitude of that is far greater than being on that stage. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like it's one of those things where you can't predict it even. No. I think oftentimes we can, we say, especially when writing a book, I'm actually putting together a book of my own, 
at the moment. And I think as we do that, we try and think of all the different audiences, you know, primary and secondary and who we're trying to impact. But it sounds like after you put it together, you actually touch people which you have never thought would would pick up the book. And I, I think that's amazing just hearing that. Well, it is. I mean, it's that's been one of the most incredible things about seeing where this book is going. I mean, we're already in nine languages coming up, well, and counting, nine languages and counting. And that has been the most incredible thing is to see people all over the world in languages I don't speak holding my book. Mm-hmm. That's blo- like, that blows me away, you know? And, and that is so special. And I, I had told my publishing company before the book was even created how important it was because to, to be in as many languages as possible because I, I go all over the world and I have fans all over the world. And so for me, it was just incredible to then see that become a reality. Mm-hmm. What kind of impact has that had on you, the, the process of publishing a book? Did you ever think you would, put, you would write a book one day? Yeah, I always knew I'd write a book. Um, I always knew since I was a kid, I just thought (laughs) that it would come 20 years later. All of this came, the speaking and the performing came literally at minimum 20 years before I thought it would. I didn't want, like, I didn't even, this was not Jen's plan. This was totally God's plan because I, and I fought it. Like I didn't want to be a speaker. I, I was an acrobat. I was an aerialist. I was traveling around the world performing happy as a lark, totally fine. <laughs> and and I didn't want it to change. And so I was resisting being a speaker so much, being such a brat about it. And I, I just thought it was going to take away from my life for some reason, from, you know, my my acrobatic and aerial life. And, and I loved it so much. And, <laughs> you know, and, and it turns out once I finally stopped being, stopped having a bad attitude about it and, and started doing it, I realized I was supposed to do it. You know, I realized I'm like, okay, this is, this is part of my destiny and I'm supposed to do this. So even the first two years I was doing it, I wasn't doing it because I really wanted to. I was doing it because I knew I was meant to, because I knew this wasn't about me. And so I was like, put my own emotions aside and I was like, okay, fine, I'll do this. And then it all just changed one day. You know, I had a speaking gig and I don't remember exactly where the gig was, but I remember the feeling and I remember everything changed, you know, a light bulb went off and I was just like, wow, what, why did I ever have this view <laughs> on speaking? I mean, this is a privilege. This is an honor. This is just, it, you know, and it just changed everything and has totally enriched my life. Being a speaker has completely enriched my life, not taken away from my life. And it, I've got to see even more countries, meet even more beautiful people. It's made me be more vulnerable on stage, more transparent, which is kind of the only way we can really help others is when yeah. we're willing to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree with you. Uh, final thought for today's episode. In a situation when odds are completely against you, what are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to? Well, for me, you know, it, it just goes back to why, what is your why? <laughs> What's my why? Why did I choose to speak? Why am I choosing to perform? Why do I choose to do the interviews? Why did I choose to write a book? <clears throat> and so on and so on. So my why is truly because I know that God created me to do what I'm doing. And 
none of this is about me. It's not me, me, me. It's not I, I, I. It's not all about Jen. Yes, my cover is on, my face is on the cover of my book. Yes, you see me on stages and this and that. But it's about me being able to be used, to be humble, to realize that my gifts and talents and abilities were given to me, not so that I could just brag about myself and say, look how awesome I am. I'm self-made. I did it on my own. I'm so great. Follow me. It's like, no, that's, that's just not what it's about. And for me, I do everything I do intentionally. I am intentional with what I post on my social media. If I'm posting it on my social media, I better be doing that and believing that and living that in my real life Mm -hmm. because what I'm doing is for other people. It, It really, that's, that's, I really believe that and I I live that way and I try to be as authentic and through and through everything that I can in everything I can. So for me, it just goes back. It's perspective. So it's like, well, why am I doing this? Well, if I'm truly speaking because it's for others, then I'm going to put my own emotions aside and I'm going to be more vulnerable, even though I don't want to, even though it sucks a little bit in the beginning, because it's not about me. And if I really believe I'm doing it to change other people's lives, and that's why I'm doing it, and it's not just about me, then I'll do it. And that, when you take the focus off of yourself, first of all, it's like freedom. It's much lighter. I mean, it just takes this like house off your chest, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yep. and it gives, for me, if I was only motivated for me, for myself, I would have burnt out five years ago, at least. There, there is no way I could sustain what I do, traveling around the world, speaking, this, that, performing, being in the air, all that. Like, there's no way that I could sustain that emotionally if it was just all about me. So for me, I get so, like that little girl that posted the video, oh my gosh. The, the letters and the messages from those eighth graders, that is confirmation and motivation. Not only that I'm doing the right thing, but to keep going, to keep pushing through because it's not all about me. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that, actually. I'm gra- I'm happy that it's not. And I get, trust me, I get totally blessed along the way. I get the love that I, that I need. You know what I mean? All of that comes. You don't have to worry about that. You know, it's there. And, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes, along with featured stand up and speak up stories and ways you can be involved with overcoming odds. Once again, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next week.